So a question for you. And the first, the first uh, probably 10 or 15 minutes, we'll see how long it takes to get through this, but the first little bit here at least is going to be, uh, I'm going to expect some interaction back and forth a little bit if you're willing. So don't be scared. Just uh, speak out. Some things will be like maybe a single word response. Other things might be an idea or a sentence um, thought. But please, uh, when you do, it's, it's amazing how difficult it is to hear from up here. I think it's because all I can hear is myself in the speakers. So you have to say it loud. Plus, you want everybody else in the, in the audience to hear as well, or the congregation. So, um, so do speak out. Okay, I, here some, uh, could be easily some single word responses. What do we generally experience in our lives, in our world? Challenges? That's a good one. Trials. 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 Yeah, yeah. Heartaches, yes, for sure. Joy. Joy, yes. We experience good things too, yeah? Yes. <laughs> Sometimes toys bring joy. Thank you, brother. Music, yes. Yeah, music brings joy for sure. Other things? Love, okay. Fear. That's a big one. Stress. Anxiety, yeah. Pain. Pain, yep. Faith. Faith. I like that one, D. Yeah, those are all great answers. And, and you guys got the idea. There's, there's uh, it, it, someplace, someplace it's written, it rains on the just and the unjust, right? I mean, grace gets poured out on, on the righteous and the unrighteous, and, uh, and it rains on both the just and the unjust as well. But, so we experience angst, chaos, separation, Longing, which is, can, can be both a good thing and, until it turns into covetousness, right? Um, but this longing that we have for something that we know should be there that maybe isn't present in our lives. Um, insecurity. We ask ourselves questions like, do I fit in? Do people like me? What are they thinking about me right now? I think that every time I'm up here teaching. Um, and, you know, a lot of this dissipates as we get older, but really the reason for that is because we're too tired to care about it anymore, the older we get. We just get too tired to care. But what are some of the things that we desire most? And this will be interactive again. What are the things that we desire most in our lives? Love, Lo- love happiness, acceptance, acceptance. acceptance. yeah. Justice, justice. yep. Peace. peace, did I hear peace? Peace and trust, I think, Yeah. Money, <laughs> the realist in the group, yeah. <laughs> Unity. Unity. What is just coming back to what does money bring? Security. Yeah, it's really kind of about security and and um, yeah, probably mostly security, um, independence maybe. Not bad things, right? Um, so some of the the ones that I wrote, those are. Fabulous answers. The ones that I wrote down in particularly were peace. We desire community. Um, I, I know we desire uh, love, and we want to we want to know other people, and we want we actually I think whether we know it or not, we want people to really know us and to accept us as we are. I think it's one of the greatest uh, it's one of the greatest gifts we can give to each other as fallen humans is to hear someone else's story and still accept them for who they are. Uh, to be able to offer forgiveness 
to be able to offer, um, I don't know, just that, that acceptance because we, we want to belong. We want a sense of belonging. We want community and we want that security that comes with it. Um, so kind of two different worlds here. And do you ever feel like you're being drugged back and forth as a Christian, in particular as a Christian, between these two worlds? And the two worlds I'm talking about are this idea of the world is chaotic around us right now, right? And yet God, as Christians, God calls us to not be anxious, to not, um, you know, to not worry, uh, to trust him, to receive his peace, to focus, as Philippians 4 says, to focus on those things that are good and right and just and pure, and that that will give us the peace of God. That focusing, it's the power of positive thinking, right? Yanked right out of the Bible, hijacked out of those verses. Um, and that gives us the peace of God. So we've got the world full of worry and chaos and then this world of peace and security that comes in knowing the Lord. We're experiencing both of them all the time, right? And it's, it's like this tug of war. At least, at least I'm experiencing them. I see a few heads nodding. But, and, it, and it feels like this tug of war dragging us back and forth. Um, so we feel like we're experiencing two different worlds because, in fact, we, we actually are experiencing two different worlds. Um, we live in this world, and there's this overlapping world of the kingdom and we live right between the two. But they're, at the moment, at least, they're overlapping. Neither one of them is fully realized, right? Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit more in, in a moment. But, um, so consider the kingdom we currently reside in. And I'm speaking of uh, probably more pre-Christian kingdom, the world that we live in, okay? Um, and in fact, consider, actually, let's think back a little bit further. Let's think all the way back to the creation. Okay, and we're not going to go all the way through the creation story, but just a couple of highlights, stories you guys are familiar with, passages you're familiar with. Um, God created, and when he put man into his creation, into the garden, it was the perfect living conditions, the perfect environment, right? Uh, we, we had security. We had peace. We had a sense of belonging, God loved them, loved us in that environment. We lived under his protection and in his presence. And yet we rebelled, we fell, right? Now I said we live under his protection. How could we fall? Well, because he created us to be free moral agents, to be able to make decisions on our own and then hold us responsible for those decisions. So even though we're living under his protection in that environment, in the garden, um, we decided to rebel, right? And I say we because we all received this from Adam. Uh, and the idea is, is that if we would have been there, we would have done the same thing in the garden that he did. Uh, so we rebelled. Essentially, we decided that we didn't need God. We decided that we didn't need his protection. We decided that we didn't need to follow his rule. One rule, Adam. You had one rule to follow, right? I mean, how hard can that be? One rule, just not that tree. Um, so, and then what happened? What was the result of that? What was the result of the, of the fall? You guys said some of these words earlier. There was fear, right? God says, where are you? And, and Adam responded, well, we heard you walking in the garden and we hid because we were afraid. We had fear. And there was shame there too, right? So fear and shame. Somebody said another? Sep separation. 
Yes, for sure. Because of, because of that disobedience, right, there was, this, there was this separation, even though God hadn't physically separated them out of the garden yet, but certainly a, a spiritual, did you say spiritual separation? Yeah. Yeah, definitely a spiritual separation that happened there. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then just in the, in the response that Adam had about this wife that you gave me, blame, right? Then the blame game starts. Um, so we've got fear and shame followed by separation and blame. Uh, humanity, Adam and Eve, as our representatives, chose to leave God's kingdom. And by choosing to leave God's, leave God's kingdom, we actually entered in and we were thrust into the kingdom of God's enemy, to the kingdom of Satan. Um, in our natural state, we actually are all our God's enemies. Um, Ephesians chapter 2. Why don't you turn to Ephesians, actually? <clears throat> we'll bounce around in the, a few New Testament passages here and then get into Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Every one of us, Paul including himself in this statement, all of us were children of wrath at some point in our lives um, because we were part of that disobedient kingdom, because we were out of God's kingdom and, and into the enemy's kingdom. Now turn uh, to Romans, which is to you the left, a couple of books. Romans, what? Romans chapter 5. Uh, chapter 5, verse... Um, oh, actually, let's start in verse 6. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now there's a ton going on there, but the thing I want to point out is that while we were enemies, while we were his enemies, while we're part of a different kingdom, Christ died for us in order to make a way, in order to reconcile us, allow us back into his kingdom, or at least to allow a way for us back into his kingdom. So God, as Jesus, or Jesus as God, however you want to look at it, um, entered into his creation, declaring the kingdom of heaven. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And some passages you could write down, Matthew 3, verse 2, Matthew 4, 17, and Mark 1, 15. Uh, so Matthew 3, 2, Mark 4, 17, Matthew 4, 17, and Mark 1, 15. In the Mark passage in particular, he says, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, 
The kingdom is here. Because the king is here, the kingdom is here. You remember the three-point um, statement, the message that the prophets were ringing out? I, I shared this when we did the overview and when we did chapter two. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah. And then the third one? Well, but there's still glorious hope. There's still hope in the future. That's awesome, though. Yeah, good job. Yeah, so the, it's, uh, or maybe I forgot the first one. Here we go. So it's, listen, Israel, you've broken the covenant, right? So repent. And then no repentance? Well, then judgment is coming. And yet even in judgment or through, maybe through judgment, there's a glorious hope in a future that awaits you. Um, righteousness will come. So that same message, you hear it right there in, Matthew, in Mark 1.15, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. He's calling us back to this repentance or calling us to the same repentance that the prophets were pointing to. Um, and in fact, turn to Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark gets right to the point in his uh, gospel. Doesn't waste much time with some helpful details, but... Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Just given the full verse there, he says, uh, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and trust in the message I'm bringing. Repent, trust the good news, the euangelion. Um, what's this time he's talking about? The time is fulfilled. Well, apparently it's everything that's happened before Jesus came, right? The time is fulfilled. He's here now. The kingdom is here. So repent and, and enter into the kingdom. But, so this raises a question in my mind, at least. It's like if the kingdom is at hand, why do we feel like we're being torn between these two kingdoms? Especially if we're Christians and we're part of his kingdom. Why are we still feeling torn between these two? Well, consider the other thing that Jesus taught. He was, just, he was teaching the disciples how to pray in uh, Matthew 6, 9, or Luke 11, and uh, familiar passages, familiar prayer that, that you'll recognize. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. So Jesus is calling in our prayers, uh, teaching the disciples to pray for the kingdom to come, to pray for that to happen. And yet at the same time, Jesus is also saying the kingdom is at hand. It's right here. Um, well, this is that already, not yet idea. Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom. He brought the kingdom. In the presence of the king, the kingdom has to be there. And yet it's not fully realized yet. Uh, redemption isn't complete. Our sanctification isn't complete. It's all of this process that still must happen. God's will isn't being done on earth yet, even though he tells us to be praying for that. Um, but at the same time, he continues building his kingdom, and it will come to fruition. It will come to pass. It will happen. Uh, a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The question is, is it going to be voluntary or compulsory? It's a question I would ask you, because one day you will bow the knee before the Lord and confess that Jesus is Lord. Is that something you're going to do willingly? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I am. I'm grateful that we can do that. If you've not come to that decision yet, 
you should today. And if that sounds like a, an, me trying to convince you, absolutely. I mean, there's no better decisions you could possibly make in your life than to trust Jesus with everything about your life and everything in your heart, mind, and soul. Um, and to enter into that kingdom, to not come under his wrath. Uh, so what is happening in the kingdom right now? Jesus came, inaugurated. The kingdom is moving forward. It continues to grow. Um, but how is that happening? What's, what's transpiring? What's happening right now in the kingdom? Well, I think before we can ask that question, before we can answer it, we need to at least get a little bit of a structure of what a kingdom is. And there are four basic elements to a kingdom. Uh, it requires a king. It should seem fairly straightforward and obvious. It requires a territory that it occupies. Um, it requires citizens or subjects to be within that territory. And it requires laws through which the will of the ruler is exercised. Laws through which the will of the ruler is exercised. So Jesus, obviously, is the king of this kingdom. Um, that's why he could come and say that the kingdom is hand. So what about the territory? Some little bit simplistic answers here in some of this, perhaps. But um, Jesus, if you remember, he told the disciples that uh, he's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to build the kingdom. And he's a carpenter. He must be taking a long time and making it a really nice kingdom that he's building. Actually, I don't think his carpentry skills is the holdup um, in that. If he could speak the world into existence, we're not waiting for him to build the kingdom to invite us to it. It's probably more about uh, the subjects, right? And I think maybe two points about the subjects. One is that we are sharing the gospel, um, bringing in more citizens into that kingdom, and then also his will being done on earth. Uh, now, that's a kind of a challenging subject because we're not legalists. We're not, um, you don't have to follow the rules to be saved, right? I mean, you have to trust Jesus to get saved. At the same time, his will should be working its way out in our lives. We should be living obedient lives to God. Um, so, well, backing up a little bit, let me ask a question. What about the territory? Or... Um, Oh, sorry, I covered that already. Um, what about the laws through which the ruler of the land exercises his will um, or that show his will? Shouldn't the citizens follow those rules so that the king's will is done on earth as it is in heaven? That's a question for you and me personally. I mean, are we following his will in our lives? Are we, are we living out obedient lives to the best of our ability? Um, it should at the very least be our goal and I'll give some pointers on how we do that here in a, a few minutes. Um, what about non-citizens, though? People that aren't part of the kingdom. Should we be expecting them to follow the Lord's will, to follow God's will in the kingdom that they're part of right now? Yeah. Thanks, Brian. We should not. <laughs> in fact, we'd probably do ourselves a favor if we'd quit expecting the people around us that aren't part of God's kingdom we'd quit expecting them to live like they are part of God's kingdom. Um, they're going to live like part of the kingdom that they belong to, part of darkness, part of the enemy's kingdom. Now, do we want to encourage them, show them what a, what a good holy life looks like and encourage them to follow the Lord? Absolutely. But we should quit expecting them to clean up their lives and act right, right, or, or to live in a particular way. 
part of this, not to belabor this point too much, but part of this points back to the, the um, The idea of which, well, just a question. Which, which made way for the other? But we live in a, in a free country with a great constitution, proud to be an American, um, super happy to live under the freedoms we do. But sometimes we get a lot of pushback about, uh, you know, we should be talking more about the constitution or we should be more concerned about our freedoms. Why aren't we talking about our freedoms and people standing up for for those things, and perfectly good and natural and right as citizens of this of this country, to stand up for justice, to stand up for things that are good and right. But where does our primary focus need to be? Did the gospel make the Constitution possible, or did the Constitution make the gospel possible? The gospel made the Constitution possible, right? It's not a direct outworking of it. We're not in a covenant. We're not, as a nation, not in a covenant relationship with God um, like Israel was and still is. Although the Israel that exists today is not that covenant nation. They're very nationalistic. They're very non-religious as far as their government is concerned. There's a remnant there, I'm sure. And there are Christians there, right? There are Christians on just the conflict that's happening there right now. There are Christians on both sides of that conflict, um, my prayer would be that the Christians, especially on the Palestinian side, would stand up and say, enough, here's the, here's the perpetrators of evil that live in my community, arrest them. Um, that's what Christians should be doing on both sides of the aisle, actually, or both sides of, in that country. Uh, they're the ones who get squoze in the middle and forgotten about, especially the Palestinian Christians, but also the Jewish or the Israeli Christians. Um, so again, just this, this process, that we, what we need to focus on is the gospel. The gospel is what makes justice possible. It's what makes freedoms possible. And that's where we should spend our time focusing. Um, and that goes along with my next question, I guess. Are we, are we building the land? Are we building the land that's part of the kingdom? Kingdom requires a king, a territory, or a land, right? Citizens and rules to govern those citizens. So are we building the land? We're not. The Lord is. The Lord is building the land. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place. He's building the territory. He's building the, the whatever the realm is, right, um, that, the, that the kingdom will be in. Um, we're building the citizenry, at least to a certain extent, He's charged us with the idea of taking his word and inviting others in, spreading the kingdom through the gospel message, um, sharing the good news, inviting, baptizing, and teaching, right? Teaching what? Teaching God's will, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Um, so how does one become a citizen? Now, there are a lot of finer points that go along with each of these uh, kind of categories that I'm going to give you here, and, and I'm not, gonna, not gonna, going to go into them, but... I think, at least on the surface, we can all agree on these points about what it, what's required to be a citizen of heaven. Uh, you need to be born again, right? Jesus said you must be born again. Um, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's part of being born again. And then the Spirit living in us, which actually is part of what reconciles us to God and allows us to exist in His presence. Um, when asked what the greatest commandment was, God said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Uh, so, so these are the commands that he gave us, right? Um, and we need to live in cooperation with what the Spirit's doing in our lives. Um, and that cooperation is what leads to the, to the next point, which is living an obedient life, living a holy life, set apart for God. Now, can we do that perfectly? I can't. Um, yeah, if we could, there wouldn't have been any reason for Jesus to come and die for us. But we should still be striving toward that, cooperating with the, what the uh, Spirit's doing in our lives, that sanctification process, making us holy, the process of making us holy. And then the, the final one is we've got to help fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus' final words in Matthew, um, some of his last words to the disciples, just reminding them or telling them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does all this have to do with Isaiah? Well, I'm glad you asked, because it has everything to do with Isaiah. <laughs> um, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 4 tonight, so if you want to turn there. I know Bill read through these passages last week. Um, we're going to camp there a little bit and, uh, and spend the evening, the rest of the evening, in these, uh, what, four or five verses. And as you're turning there, it sounds like most of you have made it. I don't your pages turn anymore, but let me remind you where uh, the general unfolding of Isaiah. The, um, the first five chapters really are not specifically dated visions or uh, incidences. It gives us a general time frame in the, in the initial, um, the kings that were ruling when, when Isaiah had these visions. Um, but we don't have specific events tied to, to uh, any of these events in the first five chapters. Later on, there's going to be m very much more specific events that we can tie time frames to, if that makes sense. Um, but these first ones are, are more like an introduction. And I said when we did the overview that chapter one, it's like, um, it's like the, uh, what do you call the docket sheet? And the, it's the charges brought against Israel, right? And, and the three main charges were idolatry, um, not having social justice or not exercising social justice, not taking care of the downtrodden amongst them, and then ceremonial uh, ritualism, trusting in the outward rituals that they were doing, taking sacrifices into the temple rather than having a changed heart, rather than living holy lives, rather than living for God. Uh, and then when we moved into chapter 2, I mentioned that this is it's it's this whole section from chapter two through chapter four. It's bookended by this picture of what um, the ideal picture, perhaps, or maybe a, a, a flash forward to what heaven's actually going to be like in the first five verses of chapter two. And it's interesting that that all follows after really this judgment that's poured out in chapter one. Uh, the, the indictment brought against Israel in chapter 1 is calling them out for those three major points of failure. And then we see this glimpse of a future glory in chapter 2, the first five verses. And then chapter 2, verse 6 through the end of chapter 3 is the realities of how Israel actually is living 
um, what the king, what that kingdom, not the kingdom, but what the kingdom of Israel is experiencing, what they're, how they're living, and the judgment that's coming against them. And then right after that judgment, we have chapter four, verses two through six, which is again this this picture of future glory. So we've got this whole judgment section that's bookended. One, two ways to look at it. One is that it's bookended. The other is that you've got all this judgment from chapter one that climaxes in, in the glory of the first part of chapter two. And then all this judgment that happens in chapter two and three climaxing in the, the glory that happens in chapter four. Um, so let's read chapter four together and then we'll work our way through it. And we're starting in verse two. Verse one really goes with chapter three. It's the end of the judgment. Uh, it says, chap- verse 2, chapter 4, it says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So a little short section, but really packed with some um, visuals there of uh, that should remind us of things we've read back in Exodus um, and other, other places. Um, so that first, the first lines there in verse 2, in that day, that expression is repeated multiple times all the way through the first four chapters. Uh, in that day, um, through the preceding judgment section. If you remember when we started in chapter 2, Again, we had this picture of the ideal, then the reality of their current situation, and then a picture of the coming kingdom. Um, so from, from uh, chapter 2, 6 through 4, 1, um, we get this, uh, well, and then being bookended by these pictures of a glory, we get this near-far view of prophecy that happens so often in the Old Testament. Um, the day of Zion's fall is merged in with this final day of the Lord. Uh, The judgment section is foreshadowing this coming great and dreadful day. Uh, And then here in chapter 4, verse 2, the prophet's attention shifts once again uh, to the very end of history, looking forward, so flashing forward once again, looking at the goal towards which everything is moving under God. Everything's moving in this direction towards this final fulfillment, this glory that's coming, this glory that awaits um, this vision of Zion's glorious future, which is beyond judgment. Maybe actually a better picture is through judgment. They're not rescued so that they don't have to go through the judgment. They actually go through judgment, and the, the outcome of that is glory. Their glory is revealed through judgment. Um, so it's a result of that judgment. The great final day of the Lord, then there's two aspects here. It's both terrible we see that in the judgment section, and it's also glorious. We see that in the, this picture of the future. Um, but the way the text refers to the glory, it, it, it looks at it as this uh, climax, as the pinnacle, reminds us that God's ultimate purpose for his people 
is not destruction, but it's actually salvation. Um, a truth that the Apostle Paul reminds us of in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Peter uh, is no less definite about this when he says, through faith we are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That salvation, which, we will, be, which will be fully realized when Christ returns, drawing history to its triumphant conclusion. Uh, it gets presented here in these verses in four images. And the first image is this branch of the Lord in verse 2a. It says, The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor. So the branch of the Lord in, in uh, many Old Testament books, the branch of the Lord, or simply the branch, is a technical term pointing to the Messiah. Um, Maybe you've heard of the stump of Jesse, uh, the shoot of Jesse, the root springing up. All of this terminology points toward the Messiah. And later, in some very specific ways, even within the book of Isaiah, chapter 11 and 12, is when we'll really look at the branch of the Lord, um, the branch of the Lord prophet, or the branch prophecy it's known as. Um, but here it, it, it's just hinting at that. And I, I have, personally I have no doubt that this is an early messianic reference. Um, but it's probably safer for us to take this more literally because it runs in parallel with the next verse, which is talking about the fruit of the land. So, those, so this branch bearing the fruit of the Lord, which is beautiful and glorious. Um, so, and it provides us a general image of the Lord's saving purpose for all to see in the last day. Do you have, do you have any friends with green thumbs? You have a green thumb or you have friends with? Friends with? Yeah, me too. Yeah. She's, oh, okay, the green thumb. So I don't, we don't particularly have green thumbs in, in our family. I really like orchids. You guys know what orchids are? They're like a stem, right, a branch, then it's got all these beautiful flowers. Yeah. <laughs> so they're hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, impossible, more like. Um, not so, though, actually. So we've bought a couple at different times through our, our marriage, um, not, just because they were in the store. It's like, oh, that's beautiful. And so, you know, and they're not cheap either, but they are very beautiful and they last for a long time. But then when the flowers fall off, which happened to all of them that we've ever owned, then there, it's just like a stick with some leaves, right? And we've never been able to bring them back to abundant life personally. But we have a friend, we have a friend who does. Now, I think he may hide some of them away in a different room and just bring out the ones that are uh, blooming. But no, seriously, I know that a couple of them that he's got in their, in their living room are ones that we gave to him because we didn't want them to die. And, uh, and they've bloomed and they're beautiful. And we credit him with doing that, right? I mean, so when you see a garden and you see a beautiful branch or you see a beautiful orchid, you know that it's the gardener who made that happen. That's the same picture we're getting here, is the gardener, the Lord, his branch is glorious and beautiful, and he gets the credit for it. Um, and it's a fruitful land, the next, in uh, verse uh, 2b, the second half of, of verse 2. The fruitful land, the, the, the land of promise, the land of milk and honey, Canaan, right? The promised land when they came out of Egypt and, and uh, wandered in the desert for 40 years and then finally made it into the promised land. That was God's gift to the Israelites in the day of Joshua. 
And that was fulfilling the promises that had been made to their ancestors, right? Um, So the land had this religious significance to the people. Um, It was a visible sign, a sacrament even, uh, of the grace that the Lord had shown in choosing them to be his people because they're his citizens that he put into his land, into his kingdom, uh, representative of his kingdom on earth, at least in that time frame. Um, so in I, but in Isaiah's day, that relationship was strained to the point of breaking, right? I mean, their idolatry and, and their disobedience, the disruption of, of God's will in their environment um, brought judgment. And the land was taken away. Um, and it lay desolate. E- even while they were still there, the land was, was devastated by their enemies right up to the gates of Jerusalem. Um, and we see that in chapter, back in chapter one, God talks about that in verse two and verses seven through eight. Um, but Isaiah, whether he really knew this or not, he was given a vision of and probably was able to put it together that... Um, gave him confidence that these ancient promises wouldn't fail, that God would restore Israel. Because he's, remember, he's looking and he's seeing uh, the judgment that's coming and even foreshadowing the, the uh, devastation of the, of the northern tribes and the eventual exile of the southern tribes. He's seen that, but then he's also seeing this restoration that's going to happen. So he's confident in God that he's going to keep his promises, that he's not going to utterly destroy the nation, that he's not going to permanently divorce his people. Uh, from the land, that a remnant would survive and that they would actually enjoy the full measure of what had been promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to their forefathers so many years before. Uh, The fruit of the land would be uh, their pride and their glory. And it's an image of this abundant provision and then this deep contentment. I ta- remember I talked about this longing that we have. Contentment is, is, almost, is kind of the opposite of that longing, right? That desire when you're content with what you have, when you're satisfied, um, when things are full, uh, then that brings peace. And they had that in the land at times. Um, so then... Uh, the first image, um, gardeners appreciate. The, the second image here about the abundance of the fruit, the abundance of the land, farmers are going to appreciate. The next one here, city dwellers, more like Isaiah himself, they appreciate this next picture a little more, which is verses three through four, and that's a picture of the holy city. Um, the focus in Isaiah here narrows down in these, in these verses to the land, um, to, to Zion, to Jerusalem itself, the, the city which had acquired a special significance for Israel in the time of David. Um, in, in those times, in the times of David, it had, it had uh, its holiness really came about kind of in two ways. One, because it, had, it, had, uh, it was holy because God the Holy One of Israel, had chosen it as the place where his king would reside. His chosen king, David, resided in Jerusalem. So God's election and putting his king there makes it holy. And then his descendants would rule over his people from, uh, from there forever. And where God's people, the second part of where God's people would assemble to meet with him in his temple. But it was only holy in the sense that it, that it exhibited in a corporate life the very character 
of the one who had chosen it. It exemplified God's character. It had been faithful and full of justice, he tells us in in chapter 1, verse 21. So the city was faithful and just, a place of justice, just like God's kingdom is a place of justice. Um, But the Zion of the Zion, the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day was corrupt. It had become a harlot, poured itself out to idols. Um, but again, Isaiah never doubted that it was still chosen to play a key role in the Lord's purposes. In, the, in the, these two verses, in verse 3 and 4, uh, Isaiah sees the Zion of the future inhabited by an elect remnant, living in a city which has been purged of its moral corruption. It's been sanctified by the Lord, not sanctified by the people there, but actually sanctified and made holy by God. He's the one who has uh, taken away their shame. He's the one who has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, Zion, cleansed their bloodstains, cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem. So through him, through the sanctification process, the city once again is made um, holy. So, and it's made holy once again in two ways, because it's elect and because it's faithful. And this holy city represents one of our primary desires, this, this um, idea that we talked about, about wanting to belong, about, wanting, about this desire to be part of a community, to be accepted into a community, and to feel like we're part of something greater than ourselves, something bigger than ourselves, part of a community. And then finally, uh, verses 5 and 6. Um, It says that the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So this final image is looking towards the journey's end, end, the journey's end. Uh, This pilgrimage that God's people have been on, they're at last secure in God's presence forever. Um, This should draw hearts and minds back to Exodus and the pillar of fire by uh, by night and the the pillar of smoke by day. Um, Same God, right? uh, Traveling with his people in the presence of the people, protecting them, watching over them, um, as they were guided on their journey through the wilderness. Again, by what? By a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Um, The manifested presence of the Lord, God himself presenting himself amongst them. And it's a journey that was punctuated by encampments as they moved along, you know, and stopped from time to time. And then as they spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness, God's presence never left them during, those, during that wandering, during that judgment time. Uh, he remained with them. And um, according to the scripture, the fiery cloud covered the tabernacle like a protective shield. So uh, it brings out this idea, this ideal which they hoped for, rest in the land, pointing towards that. Um, but that was never perfectly achieved, in the, even in the time of David. And now during Isaiah's time, some 300, later, some 300 years later, it seems farther off than ever before, and yet Isaiah is seeing this picture of it. Um, so 
their pilgrimage continues. Isaiah believes that the, believed that the final encampment of God's people would be in the new Zion, and there at last their journey would end. But I want you to take note of this major difference between the, the, the idea of the pillar of fire and the cloud. Um, in Exodus, it was over the tabernacle. God's glory filled the tabernacle, so his presence was in a limited space, right, in a limited place. Uh, any ideas why that was? The curtain in the temple is part of this too. Because um, God's presence can't, well, nothing that's not holy can, can exist in God's presence, right? If it wasn't for, the, if it wasn't for the, the holy of holies containing God in a sense, not protecting God from the people, but actually protecting the people from God, because they would have been just destroyed, wiped out because of their uncleanness, because of their unfaithfulness, because of their unholiness. But the picture we get here is, is not like that. Now the, the God's presence, His glory, this fiery presence is enveloping the whole place, the whole community. He's actually residing with them, not in this isolated place in the temple or the tabernacle, but this canopy enveloping all of God's people, enveloping the kingdom. Um, now, it's a picture probably of something that's like the New Jerusalem that we see in, in Revelation, right? That's ginormous. I mean, it's huge. But Isaiah's description of it here, the best he could do is describing this canopy over the people and over Zion, over Jerusalem, essentially. Um, so his glory fills the whole camp, the protecting cloud. It's like this vast canopy over the pavilion rather than just over, um, again, just over the tabernacle. It covers the entire site of everybody who's assembled, assembled there. Who's assembled there? Well, at, at the very least, the remnant of Israel. But very likely, this is a picture of God's entire kingdom. So Jew and Gentile, uh, all who have put their faith and trust into the Lord, all of the citizens of the kingdom. Um, there's no longer a need for any temple or tabernacle for the glory of the Lord will be directly accessible to all. We don't need an intermediary anymore. We don't need a sacrifice because of Jesus' sacrifice. Um, and all of us who are present with God in this will be perfectly secure forever. Now, this is not some out-of-date dream that Isaiah was having uh, but it's actually one that Jesus prayed would be realized, both when he taught the disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer and then also in John 17. And why don't you turn to John 17? <clears throat> this is in the upper room shortly before, shortly before the crucifixion. Uh, it's a, this, pretty much all of chapter 17 is a prayer. It's known as the high priestly prayer. Uh, but jump up to um, verse 24 of chapter 17. John puts this as a picture of our vision or of his vision of us with the Lord in the future, um, us in his glory which should inspire us and draw us as all of us continue on our own pilgrimage. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with you where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. 
So he's, he's praying to God for us to be with him in that glory, for us to be with him in that kingdom, uh, secure forever. Um, in his presence. So last point here, um, because it's important to understand that this, this pillar of fire, the Lord's, this, this uh, picture that represents God's presence, his presence with his people, uh, similarly to the day of the Lord, it's both a glorious thing and also um, a dreadful thing. Coming back to the idea of, are you a citizen of God's kingdom? Uh, because if you're not a, citizens of God, a citizen of God's kingdom, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus as, uh, as Lord and Savior, um, if you're not cooperating with the Holy Spirit to, in the sanctification work that he's doing in your life, then that pillar of fire brings eternal destruction. Um, not just death. Not, it doesn't consume you. It just is eternally destroying you, right? So it's either this dreadful picture or it's this glorious picture of salvation and living in God's presence forever. Um, and being a Wednesday night, I'm guessing that most of you have committed your lives to the Lord, um, but that's sometimes not a safe assumption. So just to give an idea of what it's like to, to invite the Lord into your life, it's a simple process. It's like, uh, Jesus, you're God, I'm not. I've lived a terrible life. I've lived for myself. I want, to, I want to repent so I won't face judgment, right, because of that future glory that's coming. Um, and then if that's something that's heart, happening in your heart and mind, either right now in this moment uh, or perhaps as you think back through the things that happened, uh, the next step actually is, one, to tell somebody. Go talk to somebody. Talk to, your, talk to you, uh, a pastor Talk to a good friend that you know is a Christian. Come up and talk to me after the service. And then sign up for the baptism that's coming up in, uh, it's in November, I believe, so about a month away. Because um, that public declaration of being baptized is actually the New Testament version of what we would think of as the, as, uh, the sinner's prayer. It's making that public declaration and that commitment that, yes, I'm one of his um, because there really are two camps. There are, two, there are these two worlds, once again, that I talked about before. There's the kingdom of darkness that we've been drawn out of if, we're, if we are indeed God's children. Um, and in John 1.12, he tells us how that happens. To those who believe, to those who received him and believe, he's given them the right to be called God's children. So not everybody is children of God, right? That's a concept y'all are familiar with, I'm sure, but... Um, it takes this committing to believing and trusting in Jesus to be one of his children and to be called into his kingdom. Um, so if you've not made that commitment, just encourage you to do so. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. Um, thankful, Lord, for really this picture that we get in, in so many places in Scripture, but especially here at the beginning of Isaiah of, of, of um, both judgment and glory, uh, representing the two destinies that are available to humanity in so many ways, Lord, um, to live in constant judgment or to actually uh, be judged and found not guilty because of the blood of your Son because you've paid the price for us. Um, 
So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here. For, for those of us who know you, love you, and are trusting you, Lord, I pray that you help us to, to just be cooperating with the work the Spirit desires to do in our life in the process of sanctifying us, that we would indeed um, live in that power and that reality, and that we would be sharing the message of the gospel on a regular basis, Lord, uh, in in both in words and just the way that we live our lives, that people would, would as, as you say, they would know us by our love for one another. Um, and then in Romans, it also says that if nobody tells them, how are they ever going to know? So if, if we're not taking the word to them, how will they know, Lord? So, so I pray that your people, that we would consciously and purposefully be sharing the gospel message, uh, both here in our country and around the world, Lord. Um, help us to, to find ways to be involved in that process. Um, and Father, if there's anybody here that has not committed their lives to you, I pray that you would be speaking to them through the, the passages tonight, through your word, Lord, uh, through the, the things that you've given me to share, that you'd be touching their heart and drawing them in and that, that they would make that decision, that they'd make that commitment uh, to trust you with their lives, to trust you with their souls, to trust you with their eternal destiny, Lord, um, and that they would be found under this this protective, fiery cloud that we get such an awesome picture of in, in uh, Isaiah 4. Father, we love you. We're thankful for these realities and thankful for the work that, that you are doing both in our lives and the work that you continue to do in this world, um, building your kingdom and uh, even with all the craziness that's going on, Lord. And, and speaking of the craziness, Father, we do pray for our brothers and sisters that are in the Middle East, in Israel in particularly, and, and in Palestine, just that whole region. Those who know you and love you, that are called according to your purpose, that are, in, that are indeed your children because they've received and believed. Father, would you please protect them and help them to uh, live just and upright, holy lives uh, representing you to their neighbors and um, caring for those who are hurting right now, having compassion and uh, sharing in, in places of need, Lord, and uh, bringing comfort to those who are hurting. So many lives have been lost and, and so much hurt and pain happening there right now. Would you please use your people to bring comfort and, and, uh, and also to bring peace, Lord? We do pray for the peace of Israel. Father, we pray that... Uh, that they would recognize their Messiah, that they would recognize Jesus who you sent directly to them and they rejected him the first time, Lord. Um, please open their hearts and minds to the realities of who he is, that real peace would happen because that ushers in not just peace there, but peace everywhere. So we look forward to that day, Lord, um, and at the same time pray for friends and loved ones that we have that aren't following after you yet, that you would be changing their hearts and minds also. We love you, Lord, and are grateful for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.